Well, last week when we began the book of 1 Peter together, I made you a guarantee, and that guarantee was this, that at one time or another, all of us as Christians will find ourselves in the midst of a trial, trouble, or some type of tribulation. It has been said of Christians that we are either coming out of a trial, we are either going into a trial, or we are currently in a trial at the moment. Difficulties go hand in hand. They're synonymous with Christianity, and we need to be prepared for when those difficulties arise in our life. We've called these trials, troubles, and tribulations storms of life. And we take that from the uh, manner in which Jesus addressed them in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon of the Mount when he stated very clearly that both believer and non-believer would experience storms of life. And dependent on where their foundation lay would allow them either to stand or to fall during that storm. It is God's desire for us that we build our house, our lives, upon the gospel and his word. And if we choose to do that, then when the storms of life come, we shall stand in the midst of them. However, though, if we choose not to build our lives upon the foundation who is Christ the rock, then our house, our lives will fall, and great will be that fall. For Jesus tells us that very clearly. So coming to the book of 1 Peter as a church, We've entitled this series, Standing in the Storm. We want to equip you to be able to weather whatever trial, trouble, or tribulation you may face in life. And Peter, we believe, wrote this letter in doing just that, standing firm in the grace of God. If you will highlight for yourself 1 Peter 5.12, when he says, declaring that this is the true grace of God, and he then asks, stand firm in it. And that's what we choose to do, to stand firm in the grace of God during whatever storm of life comes about. The title of my message this morning is called Singing in the Rain. How many of you enjoy the 1952 movie with Gene Kelly, Singing in the Rain? It's actually one of my favorite movies. I've just confessed, it's it's right up there with Spider-Man and Star Wars. No. (laughs) And that being said, I don't know about you, but I cannot watch that movie without going away humming that song. Of course, you remember the scene as Gene Kelly drops off his girlfriend at the door, gives her a kiss goodbye, and it's raining. And as he's walking home, he's so in love that the storm around him doesn't even matter. And of course, you know the words, for I'm singing in the rain, he goes, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling. I'm happy again. And he goes on to sing, and it didn't matter what he faced. He took his umbrella down. He just basked in the rain. It didn't matter because he was in love. And no matter what happened, people running by him, looking for shelter from the storm, he just couldn't even imagine not enjoying that moment because his love for her was so far greater than the damper that the storm may put upon his life. 
I thought that was completely appropriate to introduce our message this morning. I hope that our love for Jesus Christ would guard our hearts and our minds. It would allow us to sing in the rain of the storms of life. If such joy could be uh, derived from a human relationship, how much more could one uh, rejoice in the fact that we are loved by the God of all creation, Jesus Christ, and nothing, absolutely nothing will ever separate us from that love. And feeling that that song was appropriate to introduce our text this morning because Peter begins this letter with what's called officially a doxology, which is a time of praise of the Lord. And he reminds us of who we are in Jesus Christ, that we have had the privilege of being born again to a living hope, knowing that our hope is living because Christ rose on the third day. And nothing is going to put him back in that tomb again. And we have a living hope in God. And therefore, no matter what the circumstances of life may bring, we can still sing in the rain of that storm of life, rejoicing in who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. And so we begin this morning in verse 3 with the word blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the exclamation point there. He is praising God at the top of his lungs. The word blessed means they're praiseworthy. For God the Father is praiseworthy. Why? As he continues on, he will uh, explain to us why. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by the power of God are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he is thanking the Lord. He is praising the Lord for what God has done in his life. According to the great mercies of God, God is able to have mercy upon us, meaning not giving us what we deserve because Christ suffered those things in our place. Christ gave his life that you and I may live. And in those moments that he hung from the cross, shrouded by darkness, remember what we said occurred at that moment, that the judgment of God, the separation from God, the death that all occurred there at that moment was scheduled for you and I, for we were going to be judged by God. We were going to be separated by, from God for all eternity. And we would experience the ultimate death if it wasn't for the person of Jesus Christ who hung there in our place. But he didn't just hang there. He didn't just die. On the third day, he rose again, allowing therefore God to show you and I mercy. And for Peter, that was the beginning of it all. 
because he had known the mercies of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, he then realized that he was a new creation in God. And even though the storms of life weathered against him, he could still sing in the rain because of the mercies of God the Father. These mercies allowed us to be born again. To be born again into a new hope. Not a dead hope, but a living hope, the scripture says. A living hope in Jesus Christ. For the world, they hope in the mere understanding of possibility. They hope everything works out okay. It is possible that everything is going to work out okay, so I'm going to hope in that possibility. And that's all they have. And Jesus would certainly consider a possibility being nothing more than just mere sand. But for us who are in Christ, we have a living hope, first and foremost, because Christ rose from the grave on the third day, never to be entombed again into the tomb. Therefore, allowing us to know that not only is he alive, but he is interactive in our personal lives. We have a living God in whom we can go to at any time of the day or night and enter into a time of communion and fellowship with him through prayer. We have a living hope. And unlike the hope of the world that is based upon uh, probability or possibility, we have a certainty to our hope. I have a living hope because I know for sure that Christ rose on the third day. And therefore, I don't have to wonder about the certainty of the hope that I have. I know that I can have hope in Christ. And that hope is based upon a certainty, a fact, not just mere feelings or optimism. And therefore, I can rejoice. And I can say, praise the Lord for what he is doing. But all of this leads to an inheritance, as Peter will then say. And he spells out this inheritance for us. This was a very important subject to those in whom he was writing to. The individuals that he was writing to that we discovered last week were Christians who were displaced amongst the known world. Specifically Jewish Christians who were displaced amongst the whole world. They were taken from their homeland or exiled from their homeland many of them leaving their family ties, their national ties, their financial ties behind them, having nothing. And Peter reminds them that what you have left behind pales in comparison to what you currently have in Jesus Christ. And that is an inheritance. And look at what he, how he describes it. And it's not like the inheritance of the world that can be taken from you specifically telling us what this inheritance is not or cannot be. It cannot be defiled. It cannot be fading. And it is kept for you in heaven for all eternity. Secure in Christ. Secure in the hands of our heavenly Father. This inheritance that is given to us. When we consider the idea of inheritance, we consider the idea of something given by one to another 
after one has died and bequested or bequeathed to them, and therefore they inherit something after an individual dies. Many Christians I have discovered have the misunderstanding that inheritance and treasures are the same thing. I disagree with that. Treasures are something that we can accumulate in heaven, and inheritance has been given to us. Well, who died? Who died and then willed us this inheritance? Well, who do we think? Christ. Christ died. And as a result, he gave us an inheritance that consists of every spiritual blessings that are in heavenly places. We have that assurance. But you might say, well, he rose again. Does he want his inheritance back? No. He wants to enjoy that inheritance with you. He wants you to enjoy that inheritance with him. Again, it is every spiritual blessing that are in heavenly places. In that culture at that time, it's important for us to understand that an inheritance showed that you belonged somewhere. And it was also security for yourself and for your offspring. And undoubtedly, the persecution affected one's inheritance as hostile neighbors might drive one from their ancestral lands. Possessions might be destroyed by mobs or governments might confiscate both goods and land. But Peter points to an inheritance that cannot be defiled, that is unfading, that is imperishable, and that is kept for us in heaven. When he speaks about something being imperishable, it means that it can never erode, crack, decay. It is death-proof. When he talks about something being undefiled, he means that the inheritance itself is in perfect condition. No tarnish, stain can dim its purity. When he talks about it not fading away, he's talking about that it will never suffer variation in value, glory or beauty. It is time-proof. It is death-proof. It is sin-proof. It is time-proof, this inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. Peter is asking these individuals to sing in the moment that the storm is the greatest, to remember the love of Jesus Christ at that moment, and to find reason to praise him once again for all that he has done on their behalf. There's always reason to praise Jesus regardless of the circumstances that we face in life, there's always reason. And to understand that it doesn't matter what I go through here in this world, nothing can affect that which has been laid up for me in heaven, in this inheritance that was given to me by my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This inheritance would include our eternal life with Him, This inheritance would include permanent residence with him for all eternity. This inheritance would include those spiritual blessings that still finger back into this world today like a peace that surpasses all understanding. To know that I'm part of the kingdom of God even here and now. 
to understand that I can understand love like never before and like no other who are, who are in the world because of the love of Jesus Christ. I can have a joy that isn't based upon my circumstances, but completely rests in the simple fact of my relationship with Christ and my security within it. This is the inheritance that we have. As Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. This is our inheritance. As Paul praised him in Ephesians, that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And in verse 6, if you look there with me, he says, in this you rejoice. Everything that we have just learned about this inheritance and our new life in Christ. However, though, he goes on to explain the reality of how they are currently occupied now. In verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Wow, we rejoice in the fact of who we are in Christ, the new birth and the inheritance we have. However, though, Peter comes back to this moment, to this point in life. He says, but now... If necessary, for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Let us understand trials before we go on any further. Trials, again, are an important part of our Christian life. They're a necessary part of our Christian life. They are only experienced for a short period of time and there is purpose to the trials in which we occur. Now, knowing that, let's go on and explore a little bit further. When asked the question, what is a trial? We can say it is a trial or trouble or difficulty, a problem that we face. But I need to qualify that, and I need to clarify that even a little further. Today, here in our culture, we have it very good, don't we, as individuals, as people? And today, some of the things that we deal with and consider the most difficult are some of the most, unfortunately, and let me say this, and I know I'll probably get some of you upset by doing so, are actually very trivial in the grand scheme of things, aren't they? I don't consider it a trial that when I get to Starbucks, the drive-up line is around the building. I do consider it a trial when there's more than three people in line at Chipotle. <laughs> and do you ever notice, I always get behind the people that have to try everything. Hmm, white rice or brown rice? What does the white rice taste like? What does the brown rice taste like? Chicken, what does that taste like? 
steak. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. I always get behind those people. And these are not trials, folks. These are inconveniences to our, let's be honest, for most of us, cushy lives, okay? These are inconveniences. Many of us have experienced medical difficulties that have taken us back. I would consider these trials difficulties. But these difficulties are not things that are necessarily meant to be obstacles and just hindering your quality of life here on this world. There are difficulties in life that bring about change within our lives, and so they are opportunities for us to grow in Christ. One of the things I need to understand, you need to understand about trials is that it is God who authors these trials and allows us to experience them. He allows us to go through different hardships and circumstances at different times. You see this in the Gospels. When Jesus sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat and he says, I'm going to hang back and pray a little while, he knows for certain that they're going to get out to the middle of the lake and a storm is going to arise and they're going to all freak out and panic and then he's going to walk on the water and encourage them all. And then, then, like Peter, we have the choice of staying in the boat and worrying and fretting and, and wondering if we're going to die and if we're going to make it to the other side or we can say, Lord, if that is truly you, let me walk on the water. You know what Peter's saying? He's, not, he's saying, hey, Lord... Don't change the circumstances. Let me walk above them, right? Lord, all right, you've brought about these things for some reason, but Lord, I ask you to give me the faith to allow me to walk above the storm that I am currently experiencing, that I may be a witness for you, that I may glorify you in this time, that I may be a light in the darkness, that I may grow in you. Trials, troubles, and tribulations. Let us understand that they come in many different forms. I don't have time to uh, give you each and every incident of a trial. Often they are associated with our faith in Jesus Christ in the sense of being persecuted because we simply believe in Jesus. But other times it is those things that God allows. And we don't understand them. And we don't get it. And why is God allowing this to happen to me and not necessarily to the person next to me? These are trying questions when you're going through a very difficult time. This is when you have to fall back and not leave what you know to be true and adopt that which you don't know to be true. Trust God at that moment that he's a good God that he has everything in control, that he knows what he's doing. Because the only way that it, to get through a trial is to get through a trial. The only way to get through a trial is to go through a trial and allowing him to be with you every step of the way. And often, it is not until we exit that trial that we look back and say, now I get it. Or some time has passed since that trial and we can look back and say, oh, now I get what you were doing, Lord. I understand it. I didn't understand it at that moment, but I understand it now. And Lord, th thank you for the trial. 
I've actually found myself thanking God for the trials that he has allowed me to experience because he has used them to conform me into the image of Jesus Christ and to allow my faith in him to grow. But let me remind you again of some very important points that as you go through these various trials, you can hold to that will help you endure them. As one wrote, a trial is a test to prove strength, exercise spiritual muscle, and develop your spiritual strength. But let me remind you that when you go through them, number one, look at what he writes here in verse six, if you will. In this you rejoice, though now for what? A little while. Number one, remember that the trial that you are experiencing is temporal. It is temporal in nature. Even if it would, even if it would include ending your own life, where are you going afterwards? And once you get there after you die, are you really going to want to come back? Are you going to get there and say, Lord, I don't understand that trial I had to go through, but here I am now before you. You want to explain it to me? Do you think Job now on the other side of the curtain is asking the Lord, why did I go through everything that I went through? No. He will see the meaning of it all as he stands before the Lord. As we will see the meaning of it all as we stand before the Lord. As we have said so often as a believer, this world is the worst it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better. As a non-believer, this is the best the world, this is the best that they're ever going to get. It's only going to get worse after they die. But everything to a trial, it is for a short period of time, for a while. It is temporary. Number two, look at what he says here to also encourage us when we go through these times. Number two, if it's necessary. And who decides if it's necessary? Our Lord does. Nothing happens to us without him knowing about it. Job made that abundantly clear. God knows what we are going through. God knows what we need to uh, have brought about in our lives to help us to grow in our faith in him. Sometimes trials are simply chastisement where God is chastening you as a loving parent would chasten a child because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. And a trial can take that form also. But if necessary, so I'm here, Lord, if it's necessary, you're doing something in it. I don't understand it, Lord, but I know you. I know your nature. I know your character. And so therefore, I can weather the storm that I am in. As Peter continues to encourage them, if necessary, you have been grieved by these things by various trials. It's understandable for one to feel sadness during their time of trial. They did. They've been grieved by these things. The grieved means more than just simple sorrow in the Greek. It means also burdened by these things. You know, it's something that they wish they weren't contending with at the moment, but they find themselves doing just that. They've been grieved by these things, by various trials, So number four, here's the fourth thing that you can take to the bank, verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a purpose for this trial. The testing of the genuineness of your faith. Now, twofold meaning to that. In that culture, many were departing from the faith and leaving to follow cultic practices or false teachers, etc. And trials, difficulties, persecution specifically, was often the catalyst that, was, that uh, Satan used to draw those people out. If they didn't really believe in Jesus Christ, they're not really going to suffer for him, are they? That's the thinking. So there's a genuineness in that aspect that must be considered. But Peter is leaning more to the idea of a purity to your faith. That the trial is exposing weakness within you. And like a smelting pot, it is used to refine gold or silver. And as you are going through the trials of life, the storms of life, the the fiery trials, those things heat up our life and the dross, the remnants, the impurities come to the surface. We We can see them now and we can deal with them now before the Lord. Just as one refining gold would see that dross come to the surface and just swipe it away and see the refined gold left there in his cauldron. That's what God's doing in our life. Using these trials to purify our faith, which he says very clearly here is more valuable than gold or silver. That faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And so these trials have purpose to them. They are not random and purposeless without meaning. They are working in you a very specific purpose. I'd like to take a moment to read various portions of the New Testament this morning quickly to help see that this is a concept that was embraced by all the New Testament believers and by the various writers of the New Testament. I'll read them this morning, giving you the verse and uh, chapter of each book that you can then go back for yourself and highlight and read again in your private time. As James wrote at the beginning of his letter, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. Paul wrote of this in Romans 5, 1 through 5. Let me read it to you. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, And through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Paul wrote again in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. An idea embraced by every New Testament writer that the sufferings, the trials that we go through, the difficulties we experience, the storms of life are working in us for a greater good. And so, therefore, they are not obstacles to a mere quality of life. They are opportunities for us to grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith allows us to love Him, though we have not seen Him. It allows us to believe in Him, though we have not seen Him now. It allows us to rejoice in Him though we are still separated from him, knowing that at the last days, the salvation of our souls will be set forth by him. As William MacDonald, one of my favorite commentators, writes, he says, it is no more possible to rob a saint of his joy than it is to unseat Christ from his place of glory. The two stand together forever. So this salvation is what Peter picks up on now in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In, that, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which the angels long to look. This salvation. For the Jewish mindset, salvation was fully experienced at the moment of the coming of Jesus Christ. And let me explain why. Now, Christian theology, the New Testament theology, tells us that salvation is something we obtain the very moment that we uh, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ by repenting and believing unto Him. We are saved, past tense. But we are also being saved, and we are also uh, futurely going to be set as saved glorified for all eternity. The Jewish mindset saw salvation in a three-dimensional manner that I believe that New Testament Christians also are encouraged to look at salvation at in the same way. For those in the Old Testament, or I should say the New Testament Jewish individual, they saw salvation um, in three different areas. They saw salvation from a 
a physical deliverance, a political deliverance, or a spiritual deliverance. Let me say that again. For the Jewish mindset, salvation was three-dimensional. It had a physical deliverance, it had a political uh, deliverance, and a spiritual one. Now, in the questions and writing of the New Testament authors, the Jewish New Testament authors, you find that at various times they focus on different aspects of the salvation. They talk about the physical deliverance, being separated from the uh, Roman oppression. They, they see the political ramifications of salvation, once again, allowing Israel to be governed by her own king. And in fact, even into Acts chapter 1, the disciples are asking, now are you going to set your kingdom on this earth? This was the political deliverance that they looked forward to. And then, of course, there was the spiritual deliverance where the new covenant was instituted and therefore their sin was dealt with once and for all, no longer simply being covered by the animal sacrifices, but being washed away permanently by the sacrifice of the Messiah. But the prophets had limited understanding of those things in which they were writing. They looked intently at the idea that the Messiah was going to suffer, but also going to experience radical glory. Some religious leaders at that time indicate in the Mishnah and the Talmud that they believed that two messiahs were going to come, one suffer and one was going to be in glory. Most of that time adopted an idea that Messiah was simply going to come in glory and the suffering therefore had to do prophets rather than the Messiah himself. But we know how it all played out, don't we? Looking back in hindsight, we see that we're talking about the same Messiah, but at two different comings. In his first coming, he would suffer under the hand of his own creation, ending in the cross and then climaxing in the resurrection. But at his second coming, he's going to come in great glory and establish his kingdom once and for all here on this earth for a thousand year reign, as Revelation chapter 20 indicates. And so we as individuals in Christ need to look at our salvation in a three fold dimensional way. Knowing that salvation in our lives is a complete work of God. Let me read Romans 8, 28 through 30 for you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those in whom he called, he also justified. And those in whom he justified, he also glorified. So as believers in Jesus Christ, we are going to have a physical deliverance. Our salvation includes the fact that one day, we will shed these bodies of mortality for ones that are immortal. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, these bodies that we are going to inherit are going to be spiritual bodies. These are the places that Jesus mentioned that he is preparing for us to allow us to enjoy heaven for all eternity without any effects of sin or death any longer reigning within them. There's going to be a political deliverance where Christ himself will reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. As Revelation 20, we will see that and we will reign with him in glory at that time. 
And then there's going to be that spiritual deliverance, which also is encompassed in the new creation that we become, that we will occupy the new heavens and the new earth, no longer having any of the taint of sin or death upon it, and Satan will be no more. Peter is asking them to look beyond the horizon and allow them to comfort themselves by knowing what is going to happen next. Comforting themselves now in the moment, knowing what is going to still happen for all eternity that they can be assured of. As one wrote, he says, salvation is described with reference to the past. Christians have been given a new birth by God's mercy. To the present, Christians are being shielded by God's power. And to the future, at the last time, will come the divine deliverance from evil altogether. A three-dimensional understanding of our salvation in Jesus Christ. This is something that the angels cannot perceive to understand, comprehend, I should say, to understand. This is something unique to us. The prophets waited for this moment and then realized that they were not writing of themselves, but ones that would one day experience the new covenant in and through Christ himself. Let me finish this morning by reading two quotes from probably my favorite pastor, Warren Worsby. A living hope is one that has life in it and therefore can give life to us. Because it has life, it grows and becomes greater and more beautiful as time goes on. Time destroys most hopes. They fade and then they die. But the passing of time only makes a Christian's hope that much more glorious. And then he went on to say in his conclusion, Yes, for Christians, it is glory all the way. When we trust Christ, we are born for glory. We are being kept for glory. We obey him and experience trials. We are being prepared for glory. When we love him, trust him, and rejoice in him, we experience glory here and now. Joy unspeakable and full of glory is that that belongs to you and I who are in Christ allowing us that when we face the storms of life and the rains beat down upon us, as quoting that great theologian Gene Kelly, we can simply sing in the rain.